Hi friends, welcome to the Purple Couch Clubhouse by the Ohio University Women's Center. My name is Rihanna Hunt and I'm coming to you from my living room floor, where I do most important things these days. Join me for a cup of tea, a butt that falls asleep, and to sit and chat about books or readings that we could all learn something from. I understand that life is hectic and you're probably thinking you don't have the time to read a whole book. No worries, I have nothing but time and just like an in-person book club, I'm prepared to be the only one who's done the reading. The conversation will be guided by concepts from the book and I will include the important context. This month, we will be reading Mapping the Margins, Intersectionality, Identity Politics, and Violence Against Women of Color by Kimberly Williams Crenshaw. Crenshaw is a lawyer and professor at the UCLA School of Law and Columbia Law School, where she specializes in race and gender issues. She's also a civil rights advocate, philosopher, and a leading academic in black feminist legal theory and critical race theory. Critical race theory is just one of the terms coined by Crenshaw. She's also credited with coining the term intersectionality, which helped to provide a way for us to talk about the intersections of oppressions, which was discussed by others, including the Combahee River Collective. I am joined today by the amazing Kat Russell and Daniela Grijalva. Kat is a self-proclaimed data nerd who gets overly enthusiastic for just about every project she takes on. Clearly a hater for genuine rest and relaxation, Kat fills her spare time working on graduate classes, parenting an energetic kiddo, Joey, serving on a number of organizations' boards, mentoring phenomenal women through various programs, and wondering why she and her partner, Carlin, go through so much coffee. She's also the human resources liaison for strategic programming and initiatives at Ohio University, where she gets to rope amazing collaborators into big, nerdy, awesome projects over virtual coffee. And after many years living out of a backpack, Daniela joins us today from the comfort of her bedroom slash desk slash art studio, where she enjoys painting the many thoughts in her mind and contemplating life with her canine companion, Dolly. When she's not studying politics, international relations, or languages, Daniela enjoys rock climbing to relieve the stress of living in heteronormative societies. In her daydreams, she's giving a TED talk on a beach about the importance of diversity and inclusion, or reading a book about marginalized identities in the contemporary world. That is enough of just my voice. We are going to dig into our actual reading now. So first things first, what is intersectionality for those who might not know? So Crenshaw defines intersectionality with an illustrative example, which personally I think is the best way to learn anything. Uh, so she talks about the experience of a black woman working in uh, a manufacturing company where all of the folks who work in the office are women like the employee or like the prospective employee that uh, Dr. Crenshaw was representing in court, but they were all white women. And there were black workers as well, but they were all men and they were all relegated to the factory floor. So while the company argued, we don't discriminate against women, we do hire women. Side note, they're all white. And we don't discriminate against black people, we do hire black people. Side note, they're all men. Um, the judge was not able, the judge wouldn't listen to that argument of intersectionality where it wasn't just black and wasn't just woman as the two identities in isolation, but that they were connected. Um, and so noting that our identities are not singular, but multifaceted, and that the way in which we go through the world is shaped by the intersections of those identities. 
Yeah, and to kind of echo that, um, I think that it's really important to note that intersectionality tries to bring to the forefront the idea of how the different societal patterns of how we treat different identities can come together and create compounding issues. So, for example, if you have the topic of domestic violence, you know, there is you can have one layer, which is a woman's experience of domestic violence, but then that becomes more complicated if it is a woman of color or a woman from a marginalized group. It can become more tricky as well if the individual in question is part of the LGBT community or if there's a language barrier, um, which might prevent them from accessing services. And so all of this intersectionality lends to kind of a deeper understanding of the true issues that are affecting one rather than just maybe what superficially would appear if you would only place someone into one of their many categories. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you both made really amazing points there. And I really liked, Kat, how you stressed um, the word intersections, because in the past, Crenshaw has used street intersections as a metaphor to help make this idea of intersectionality more clear. Um, so as we start talking about this topic, what was your aha moment in which you realized the role intersectionality has played in your life? Absolutely. Um, I think for me, the biggest moment was um, when I was growing up. I grew up in Appalachia also as a Latinx individual. Um, and so for a very long time, being the only one, you know, that represented that identity, I was kind of the tokenized representation of everything that that could include, you know, anything spicy, anything, you know, related to stereotypes that are very popular, anything related to, you know, nasty jokes that was all in my field. And, you know, I think that battling this misconception about Latinx folks um, was very difficult and something that I ended up caring a lot about, but then um, that also kind of trapped me into one space. And I realized as I discovered more of my identities, um, you know, in different circles, um, that there was not a lot of example of intersectionality around me either. You know, I had plenty of friends that were feminists, but they were usually white and considering things from a very hegemonic point of view. I had plenty of friends that liked to talk about um, different instances of racial discrimination against Latinx folks, but we didn't always share the same values and we didn't have experiences. I've met a lot of people like me that don't really see themselves represented at all um, in the groups around us. And so I think that just kind of noticing more so by the lack of spaces in which every part of me is able to be addressed. Um, mm -hmm. I think that that has really shown to me that that intersectionality is really hard to achieve and it's really hard to see on a larger scale as well. Yeah, I can certainly echo much of what Daniela said in that I have experiences from um from my adulthood, you know, here at Ohio University, I chair a council of our affinity organizations. And don't get me wrong, I love our affinity organizations. But when it comes down to which ones I want to join, I can join a women's club, I can join the Latinx affinity organization, I can join out Ohio. But I there is no affinity organization for queer Latinx women, there is no affinity organization for any intersecting identity and in no small part because the more you have those intersections the less you know the less common it is to see yourself at any organization I certainly stand out statistically speaking as a queer Latinx woman working for Ohio University there aren't a lot of me but I want people to understand to Danielle's point of um, about how early on this can actually surface 
So I have a five-year-old kiddo. And one of my favorite things is to make sure that the characters in the books that we read at home are widely representative, right? I am sick and tired of books that are either about animals or about a white boy. Um, And so I I search regularly for books that look like our family and I can find some few, but some books um, with Latinx families. And I can find some, again, few books with great representation about queer families. To this day, I have not found a book written for his age group about that features, I should say, a queer Latinx family that doesn't exist readily. So has the concept of intersectionality been transformational for you all and your work? Um, and if so, how? I think that personally, the idea of intersectionality, you know, which kind of focuses on this overlapping of different identities and the ways that society accepts those or not. I think that learning a little bit more formally about how this dimension exists has been really important to me um, as a person generally and in the way that I do different Uh, material that I learned academically and um, implemented my job. So I remember that, um, you know, for a long time, I felt like I didn't totally belong within um, an American identity from the U.S. because I had a Latinx heritage. But yet when I went to Latinx um, places, I was treated as if I was only from the United States and had nothing to do with the culture there. Um, And so I remember spending a large part of my life kind of, you know, feeling like I needed to pick one and, and just belong there entirely, but it never felt totally right. And so when I discovered this idea of intersectionality of the fact that, you know, there is an identity of those who have perhaps been immigrants and also those who are ostracized in different contexts um, because of having left, um, you know, and, and the ways in which that was kind of this tertiary experience beyond the binary that I had been looking at before. I think that that really opened my eyes to the many ways in which, you know, there's rarely a social situation in which identities will never cross or where things will just fall so neatly into spaces. So I think that, you know, being aware from my own experience and perspective, it's given me the ability to kind of consider these multifaceted approaches and perspectives in um, all issues around me, and especially studying contemporary politics um, and human rights issues. I think that that has come up a lot. Yeah, I'll absolutely echo everything that Daniela has just shared. Um, and say that personally, the the notion and scholarly work behind that term intersectionality gave me a label for a feeling that I was struggling to identify before. Um, exactly as she just said, it was that feeling of it didn't matter where I went. I didn't have a place that I was wholly myself um, because it's so rare to find someone who has all of those intersecting components of my identity, right? To be queer identified, to be Latinx or Latina, to be, um, to have somebody, to, to be a person with a disability, to be female identified, all of those pieces, um, create a, an experience, um, that without intersectionality feels like I have to pick which, uh, name tag or pick which label I'm going to wear for that day. And it, it gave a name to that. As for how it's shaped my work, um, I like to think that it's a driving principle in my work. Uh, at Ohio University, I work a lot to make sure that we're addressing 
matters of access, equity and inclusion in policies, in recruitment, in our affinity orgs, um, in the in the collaboration happen with those affinity orgs and to recognize, for example, that if we were to only look at, say, um, gender within the binary, then that's how you come up with something like uh, maternity leave, the allowance to take time. When you start to expand that outside of a binary you and recognize different family structures, you start to see parental leave. And when you start to include recognition of different socioeconomic statuses, that intersection might lie in paid parental leave and things like adoption benefits for maybe queer identified families or families that can't conceive otherwise. If you fail to recognize intersectionality, then those policies cease to improve in any way. Um, and you're you're left with just that very baseline. Sure, you can take time to have a kid without recognizing just how many ways that can happen and what support might be necessary for different families. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so it sounds like we are saying um, without intersectionality, we create these holes that we drop people through. And I feel like that leads us into our next idea of um, what is identity politics? Crenshaw brings this up in her writing. Um, how does identity politics contribute to the idea of intersectionality? Yeah, so identity politics, that is a hot button topic uh, and has been for quite some time. Vox actually did a really great piece on this uh, a couple of years ago. But I I like folks to think about all of the different facets of identity politics because there are so many who oversimplify it, just like people oversimplify. OK, if I understand that cat is Latinx and woman, all I have to do is look at experiences of women and look at experiences of Latinx folks and boom, I've got it. And Crenshaw says, no, 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 you don't. That's more than that, right? When those identities come together, it is a, a wholly different experience out of the, out of the various intersections. So similarly, identity politics is that idea of trying to appeal to a certain base or by trying to guess what matters to a certain base by broadly grouping folks by their demographics. A perfect example of why that's a problem. Um, because let's look at the 2016 and 2020 elections. Would you like me to identify as Cuban American, in which case I was likely to vote for one party or another, depending on where I lived? So if I was Cuban American and lived in Florida in 2020, I was likely to vote for Trump. Um, if I was a, a woman living in suburbia, does happen to be a case happened to be the case for me right now, then I was likely to also vote for Trump. If I was under 30 um, and broadly identified as Latinx and not not more specifically Cuban-American, I was likely to vote for Biden. If I was just likely to vote for Biden. So when I say, okay, every one of those was true, um, then that idea of how much are you going to dissect my identity um, starts to become an issue for how how different po- uh, politicians try to appeal to me, but also how, again, it's just another example of how folks are trying to put me in a box and tell me what should matter to me um, 
or how they should appeal to me based on a very narrow view of my identity. Yeah, and I would say that, you know, kind of along those same lines. So the way that I like to think about identity politics, besides all the incredible things that Kaz just shared, is also the idea that, you know, every identity comes with its own stereotypical thing um, that's generally more broadly understood. And it also is accompanied by a certain kind of experience. You know, I think that people generally are a bit more understanding nowadays of the fact that, you know, in society, women are treated differently than men. You know, immigrants are treated differently than naturally born citizens. Um, You know, a a lot of things, you know, racism as well is, is I think, kind of more widely understood as a concept. But um, intersectionality kind of alludes to this idea that the policies and treatments of each one of these groups individually are then compounded and overlap on each other to kind of create this entirely mm-hmm. new experience that needs to be considered when you're thinking more about policy or when you're thinking more about how to address an issue in a way that's going to be beneficial. And I think that this is something that Crenshaw um, demonstrates in a really wonderful way with the example of women seeking help um, for instances of domestic violence. Um, and so in the example that Crenshaw gives, you know, the hotlines are equipped to definitely support women and to accompany women through the process of perhaps securing their physical safety and, you know, promoting different um, services of mental health and support, security, you know, everything that maybe superficially would seem great. But they didn't have any translators or any people that spoke a language beyond English um, at their call centers. And so what that did was take this service that is for a lot of people that suffer from domestic violence and limits it only to the majority, or at least the perceived majority, that is thought to speak English. And so that perhaps unintentionally excludes people that are not able to demonstrate the same level of language proficiency. Um, Even when there is someone who's able to translate, um, you know, often this is not accepted in in therapies or in different statements. which makes it also really difficult to gain access to these services. And so, you know, it's interesting because the very institutions and policies that we believe to be most helpful and that we use to address different social inequity can become very discriminatory because they don't take into consideration the more complicated facets of a combination of those identities. You know, the struggles that a white woman faces in domestic abuse are, you know, terrible and very complex. Um, and that is very much as well the case for somebody that is not white, you know, um, a person of color might face different and unique challenges and, you know, may share a lot of commonalities, but also comes from a lot of different experiences and how they've also been treated and how they've experienced the world. Um, And this all combines to kind of create this very specific set of needs that don't really fit neatly into the categories that we've placed. And so when you look at the ways in which the simplification of identity is kind of you know, disseminated into the world around us, it really can have this negative effect of turning even beneficial services into institutions of intolerance. Mm-hmm. You know? And and that's really unfortunate. And I'm sure it's not even the goal of the people that are working there or that created the organization. You know, I don't think anybody who works to support um, survivors of domestic violence would label themselves as discriminatory or, you know, think superficially that they are contributing to other inequity. But by not having accessible services for anybody that is not be like a, a perfect English speaker that is ultimately discriminatory to everybody else. Um, and so it's kind of like acknowledging that these realities have very serious consequences um, that are often also unaddressed because they happen to populations primarily that have already been marginalized and not 
given the proper attention to their own rights. Yeah. And I'll just say one last point in in amplification more than anything else is that when you look to public administration, um, it's often founded. They talk about the foundations of public administration, but they often fail to acknowledge identity. In fact, it wasn't until uh, the 2000s where scholars were starting to say, wait a minute, you can't be public administration. You can't provide services for the greater good if you fail to account for issues of access, equity and inclusion. Um, so so exactly to Daniela's point that this idea of identity politics also involves not only how um, how our citizens and constituents pigeonholed, um, how that mean politicians try to engage with those individuals, but how do public services try to engage with individuals and what are we doing to recognize people as whole beings? Um, Daniela gave some excellent examples and those can be um, both good and bad examples of how that has played out can be seen in everything from services right um from food assistance cash assistance survivor benefits um education benefits to some really um some other really impactful areas like housing and policing as well and i think crenshaw has a quote um early in her writing in mapping the margins in that kind of fits this topic this line that we've been going on well, and she says, ignoring differences within groups frequently contributes to tension among groups. And I think that that works because not only are we seeing like this ignore, like differences create issues among the people who's working on these differences, but also among the institutional structures that are then formed that neglect the differences that are there. Um, so I want to take a second to think about all systems of oppression that could be present in a person's life. And by systems of oppression, I mean things that cause people to experience inequalities in our society. Things like racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, etc. We can experience these inequalities differently. For example, women may experience sexism, but because women are not monolithic, we experience sexism in different ways. Women may experience sexism and racism simultaneously and or transphobia and or classism and or ableism and or all of them. Um, Crenshaw introduces this concept through her work with domestic violence survivors, but that isn't the only place that we need to be cognizant of intersectionality. So what are some other ways or instances in which you have found an intersectionalysis to be useful for you? Um I see it in community building. I tell people all the time, very openly, um, that, and this probably echoes Danielle's story, because we have a shared experience, and, and I'm sure I speak for both of us when I say finding somebody else who had that shared experience and, um, you know, some shared intersectionality as well. It was that it's that eureka moment of, you know, seeing a unicorn and like we never thought we would have that moment of somebody who who understood our points so clearly. Um, but as I was going through my undergraduate studies, all I wanted to do was join a student organization. 
I wanted to build community and I could find community with only part of myself and never all of myself. Um, and that is, that was harmful in the sense that I felt isolated in an educational setting. Now take that and put it in somewhere more high risk. I needed at a point in my life to find a counselor who understood what I was going through. Um, and what was happening was I was experiencing loss devastating loss and stress and expectations of who I was supposed to be. And that was all mounted um, for me off of some some very personal experiences, but also off of systemic as well. Right. Ideas of who somebody is expected to be. Um, if I say picture a CEO of a company, you're going to picture a very different person than if I say picture a caregiver for a small child. Um, so when you take familial systems that may be in place for generations at a time and then add those to national and global systems um, and, you know, recognize that that could put a lot of expectations on an individual and then to just add insult to injury, imagine that that person needs a service provider and that service provider says, oh, we'll just ignore these three parts of your identity and do X. That's what I would do. It can become so dismissive and add so much harm. Um, it's that idea of adding um, adding microaggression upon microaggression, adding gaslighting to the fire, so to speak. Absolutely. Um, I think that for me, you know, looking at different moments where I can incorporate intersectionality has been so incredibly valuable. You know, growing up, I had and, you know, to this day, I have a lot of really wonderful friends and I've had a lot of really wonderful colleagues um, and mentors and professors. But they've all kind of been very attuned to one side of me. You know, I've met a lot of people that share my same academic interests but, you know, maybe they come from a place of male privilege where they're not really understanding why I care so much about feminism, you know, or I talk to people who really know a lot about being Latinx, but cannot understand the feeling of, you know, confusion of identity or um, tertiary identity that I have felt a lot being a first generation American in a place that is predominantly white. I think that it's something that many of us become very accustomed to doing, you know, I think that I had been quite used to presenting whatever part of myself was most appropriate for a situation or another. Um, and I think which also limited the ways in which I was able to appreciate those around me, because I would also try to find, you know, commonalities that we shared and stick to those labels instead of appreciating the full spectrum of, you know, what a person could necessarily offer me through our conversation or through educational experiences, um, you know, that diverted from perhaps the main identity they espouse. I think, though, that when using intersectional analyses, um, I have always found a real benefit and it's always been so much more enriching. You know, I think that, uh, you know, for example, this year I signed up for a mentoring program and it was incredible because the mentor that I was paired with was somebody who shared so many of my identities in a way that I had never had a role model before. You know, I'd had people that were Latinx, but they did not have the same kind of values that I did, or I had people that were really intensely into political and legal discussions and, you know, human rights, diversity and inclusion, but, you know, they did not really care about the perspectives or people that, you know, really understood some parts of me, but could not relate to the different family pressures that I face, you know, coming from a Latinx family, um, which just simply has different dynamics. 
that one can't understand unless it's a lived experience. And talking with this person, you know, and, you know, very casually, the, the small ways in which we were able to connect because of the holistic experience that we shared, I found myself opening up and reconsidering issues that I thought I had already, you know, processed and made a decision on in an entirely new light, because for the first time I had the space to also admit to myself that there was this complexity beyond the more superficial appearance of, of what a situation had been. And I think that that has allowed me to really take a stronger, you know, stance of advocating for myself and also for identifying the validity in not only my experiences, but in the complex experiences of others around me. And I think that, you know, finding this kind of space or or the support system that an intersectional approach can bring, you know, is, is so incredibly important. And it has really changed the ways in which I've been able to connect with myself and connect with others whenever I find myself um, in instances of, of intersectional connection, because it just feels like Exactly as Kat was saying, you know, like I'm actually myself instead of just 25 percent or 10 percent or whatever most conveniently fits in line. You know, I'm no longer just a resume to be altered for each different employer or person I present myself to. I'm just a holistic experience and that's okay. Absolutely. Um, So throughout our discussion, we've kind of switched back and forth between what Crenshaw described as structural and political intersectionality. Um, So when talking about structural intersectionality, Crenshaw says strategies based solely on the experiences of women who do not share the same class or race backgrounds will be of limited utility for those whose lives are shaped by a different set of obstacles. For example, shelter policies are often shaped by an image that locates women's subordination primarily in the psychological effects of male domination and thus overlooks the socioeconomic factors that often disempower women of color. Um, And we kind of talked about this already a little bit as we've talked about the different structural inequalities that we have seen. But I want to touch on it again, and I want to know if or where in your work you have seen this systemic neglect that Crenshaw is talking about. Yeah, uh, I think a glaring example that I see um, can even can even happen with, as I'm sure is the case so so often, the best of intentions, right? So look at a simple matter of recruiting. Um, you say, I want to be more more aware of how bias can impact our search processes. So I'm going to make sure that we're not asking folks um, these questions that come from a discriminatory stance, because that's how I perceive racism and sexism and transphobia um, and maybe Islamophobia and uh, nationalism all kind of coming into into play. And in doing so, we still have this assumption of, oh, but I can still expect them to be of the socioeconomic standing to get here. Right. And once they're here, I can still assume that they are able bodied and able to do a tour of our campus with no effort or that they can go straight through with no breaks between sessions because there's no um, medical concern or need to eat food or need to use lactation spaces. So where people say, I am making sure that we bring the best candidate to campus, but they've taken a very narrow approach to how they view candidates and and they view them 
they don't recognize all the different ways um, in which that person has to to be wholly presented um, in that recruitment process or they still or they might still look to coded language that that relies heavily on isms and phobias. So maybe a candidate does find the means to come to campus, but can't do the campus tour and does need to ask to be excused to use a lactation space. And then at the end of the day, they walk away and the committee deliberates and they say, I'm just not sure they'd be a good fit here. Um, and the system as a whole says, oh, no, you found a, a highly qualified candidate. So it can be very difficult to see the the impact of each decision layered on so that that for a holistic and intersectional analysis becomes absolutely critical for sustainable change. Otherwise, it's far too easy to cover up issues um, because so many of them exist that you can't just point to one. In this case, the questions being asked in the interview um, to to solve all of those issues. Absolutely. Um, I think that the example that I will choose to give right now is um, something that happened to me a few years ago when I was initially applying for college and different scholarship programs. Um, so this is maybe more from the point of view of someone being recruited. Um, I remember finding this incredible scholarship for, you know, first generation students of color and, um, you know, different ethnic backgrounds that could apply and you'd get, you know, your, your food and board covered and you would get, um, you know, your tuition waived. And it sounded like a really, really great and excellent um, competitive scholarship. And I had worked really hard to get, you know, good grades. I had joined a lot of organizations. I was very passionate about my educational path and very confident in what I wanted to study. Um, and when I got to kind of the interview day for this scholarship, I found myself with a team of other brilliant students, you know, that were coming from all over the country, you know, also fitting in the same description. And the first thing that the recruiters told us was that um, we shouldn't worry about, you know, how difficult college would be because they would give us a class in how to write a schedule and how to be organized and how to study and like how to have a planner and stuff like that. And so for me, as someone who was second in her class in high school and had already definitely mastered, you know, organization and, you know, different skills because of the educational privilege that I had, I felt very, very strange. And, and a lot of us ended up talking about it and it felt really patronizing. And like it was assuming that because we were first generation students of color or different backgrounds that we were just automatically going to be struggling or somehow less intelligent or less capable of facing the academic challenges of university, um, which led them to provide resources that, I mean, sure, if we had actually had those needs, it would have been incredibly helpful. And I'm sure that for many students that perhaps fit that profile more, it is. But, you know, when I spoke to the director of the program and kind of affirmed that I did not really feel that, you know, I necessarily needed these courses, they took a very closed approach and said, well, no, you know, like someone like you just, you know, like there's just no way that you know this, you know, like you just have to go through it. There's no possibility for you to get the scholarship unless you're willing to, you know, basically perform, you know, as kind of a, a tokenized student that has just been taken out of their terrible situation, you know, and, and has been saved by this university. And, and that was just not my experience, you know, and that felt, I felt really um, marginalized in the sense that, you know, it was very clear to me that as a Latinx individual, I was being viewed in a very specific kind of way that did not, you know, take any account into anything else that I had done. It did not take into account the privilege that I had had growing up. It did not 
take into account anything other than just a stereotypical assumption, a very wrong assumption of how this person felt that, you know, people like me, I guess, should be, or maybe the examples that they'd seen in the popular media. And so, you know, I, I ultimately chose to give up the scholarship because I felt very, I felt very strongly that it was something that was being discriminatory towards me and, and did not allow me to both be Latinx, but also successful and career oriented and um, academically driven. And so I have seen a lot of students that have either gone through that very program or, you know, that have encountered similar situations where scholarships or um, different educational programs designed to supposedly support marginalized communities um, really limit themselves to having one view of what that identity can look like. And, um, you know, in, in the same way, demonstrating a lot of ignorance towards the wide variety of experiences that all of us have, um, which is very unfortunate and can lead to a lot of self-doubt. It can lead to a lot of um, resentment as well. And it propagates this image of, you know, dominance and hierarchy in our society premised upon, you know, arbitrary and socially constructed factors, which, you know, should not matter and, and which don't always mean that someone is the way that you might think they are. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. That was a really powerful story. Um, and I hate to move on from it so quickly, but on the other hand, we have political intersectionality of which Crenshaw says the need to split one's political energies between two sometimes opposing political agendas is a dimension of intersectional disempowerment that men of color and white women seldom confront. Um, and as a white woman, I would like to confirm I have not felt this intersectional disempowerment um, that she is talking about. And so where else might this space of intersectional disempowerment exist in our work, our lives, our social political groups, whatever they may be? That's a really interesting question. Um, and I would, again, kind of point towards educational policies as being a very strong example of, you know, how this tends to work and also just generalized education. So, um, you know, just once again, going back to my personal experience, you know, growing up as a Latinx individual in Appalachia meant that I was one of very few and often the only person that represented that identity. Um, and so growing up, I heard a ton of jokes that made fun of and disparaged Latinx people, Hispanic people, people that spoke Spanish, people that were immigrants, people that came from Mexico, and found myself, as I mentioned before, always being a staunch defender of my culture and of other cultures that didn't have anything to do with me. Um, and at the same time, I was fully aware that in a lot of Latinx um, communities that I was a part of, in a lot of my own experiences, I had seen, you know, corrupt institutions politically, I had seen serious mismanagement with development. I had seen, you know, racism even within the countries that um, were part of Latin America that I'd been in. I had seen machismo and sexism and a ton of classism and all these things that, you know, someone who firmly believes in diversity and inclusion are wrong, you know, and, and that they're wrong if they're here in uh, the United States or if they're in the middle of Australia or if they're in Spain or if they're in Chile, you know, it doesn't matter. They're never, you're not, they're never acceptable. Um, but because I was um, kind of put in this position where I was the only advocate for a Latinx identity, um, I was really disempowered to actually speak about 
the truth um, and, and the real issues and kind of forced to be in this position where I either, you know, contributed to the disparaging of my Latinx heritage or, um, you know, totally let uh, other values that were equally important to me become unnoticed and, and not speak about them, you know, and, and not tell the truth about how these are serious problems that need fixing. Um, and so it kind of puts you in a position where you have to, again, kind of pick and choose the thing that's most important, which can be really tricky, you know, because I, I feel very passionately that discrimination against Latinx folks is terrible and wrong. And I want to be such a strong advocate against that. And I also am an uh, intense an intense advocate for um, equality and feminist treatment and the end of classism and racism. And so, you know, it becomes difficult when the defense of one identity becomes also the defense of negative qualities of another. Daniela brought up some some amazing examples there. And I think that there are two ways in which we can view this, right? We can view it really broadly. You gave the example of um, a white woman who their who where traditional feminism is still very strongly rooted in racism, right? Keeping others down while promoting others. Um, and the same struggles that a black male might face where the benefit that comes to him is by um, fighting against racism while promoting sexism. Again, they can go hand in hand, but I think sometimes that's hard for folks to wrap their head around without some of those illustrative examples. Um, and sometimes you can think of it even on a really micro level of an individual who maybe is, um, who like myself is queer identified, um, but who believe, who recognizes that in order to maintain familial connection, you have to, you have to really look to that tradition, in which case that lies heavily in religion as well. They go so hand in hand. So then imagine trying to be, a queer Latinx person living in a really conservative town around the time that the marriage equality debate um, started in order to advocate for either side, you are inherently facing loss. Um, and this is a frequent conversation, right? That in order to be one's true authentic self, that there is a risk of loss of family and friend connections. And then with that, a sense of belonging, right? Because so much of who we are is actually rooted in our ancestry. Um, and so then to the, to look at it again on a macro scale and say, now imagine whole swaths of people feeling torn like that. Um, it starts to circle back to that idea of identity politics and how, um, you know, how there can be really strong divides and, and fighting between identity types, even if somebody has both. Absolutely. I really enjoyed how you put that. It was really well said. Um, so to wrap up our conversation, I would like to know, moving forward, how can we integrate these ideas into our fields and our lives to fight the inequality of our systems and movements? Um, I personally, as like I said before, a white woman, I want to fight in a world where feminism is not rooted in racism. Um, so how can we do that? How can we integrate these ideas to make our systems and movements more equal? No pressure, right? Um, 
It's certainly no small feat. Uh, and I don't I don't mean to downplay it at all, though. One of the best things you can do is just listen. And then when you are done listening to one person, find another to listen to. But then step back and take a, a you know, a mental photo, if you will, of that that group shot. Who have you talked to and who's missing from that table? One of the things that I teach um, committees who are getting ready to engage in recruitment activities all the time is you can have a completely diverse committee where everyone brings a different perspective and lived experience and layer of expertise to the table, but it might not be at all inclusive because you only actually listen to and pay attention to one or two of those voices. And you might have a wholly inclusive group where you listen to every single person at the table and you feel really great about that until you step back and realize that it was so easy to do because they all shared similar experiences and shared similar backgrounds and similar expertise. In order to drive change, you need both. And I think that that follows through to so many different areas of our lives, personal and professional, and certainly at a government level, a global level, um, an educational level. You can't just walk into a classroom or into a new um, NGO and say, we're going to we're going to start serving everyone by using the exact same pillars that have always been used. You have to step back and reevaluate and say who has been missing and then listen and include that as well. I think that, um, you know, I would totally affirm everything that Kat has just said. Um, I think that as well, maybe at a more informal level for those of us that maybe don't specialize in diversity and inclusion, but that still want to do our best to be allies and advocates for um you know, the different identities that make up our amazing world. I think that, um, you know, there are a couple of different key steps that can be taken. For one thing, I think that um, ending the age of assumption is very important. I think that especially in a world where so much of our lives are exposed publicly on social media, um, it can be really easy to assume that we know what is going on in someone's head or what kind of experience that they've lived through. Um, but the truth is so often more complicated than whatever we notice or are privy to, you know, just on our phones or meeting someone in a classroom or anything like that. Um, and so I think just kind of, you know, recognizing that we have all been taught to view the world in stereotypes. Um, stereotypes are very useful because they simplify otherwise complex problems um, and make it into something that our brains can easily conceptualize, you know, assimilate into what we're going to do and then act accordingly. Um, but, you know, despite this kind of you know, quick utility, it is rooted in a generalization and misunderstanding of so many things. And, and I think that most of us, as we meet more people and as we learn more about ourselves and about the world, we, we come to understand that not everything is exactly the way that it seems or the way we were taught as we were children. Um, and so having an open mind to the fact that just because we might assume something or see something or think something, that does not necessarily mean that's the whole story. And, um, you know, I think that once we know about it as well, like it is our job to kind of um, in whatever way we can promote the respect of these different identities. So, you know, making sure that we are active bystanders in situations of oppression, making sure that we are continuously learning about just different easy ways that we can 
become better listeners or become more empathetic to others in general. And I think that that overall, you know, is a good human characteristic to have, if you will, um, because the ability to listen to somebody else's very different and unique experience um, and recognize that its value comes in all the ways in which you might understand it, but also in all the ways that you might not. Um, I think that that will hopefully foment a better level of respect that will increase vulnerability as well, um, as we've been talking about, because of the oppression that often accompanies um, you know, certain socially constructed identities, as well as the marginalization of the um, intersections of these identities, it can be really hard for folks that have a lot of different intersecting identities to feel included or listened to um, or feel like they actually have the freedom to defend all the things that they defend um, or that they believe in. And so I think that, you know, trying to support these spaces as much as possible and, and just kind of like think about it is such an important step. Um, and I think that if you are somebody that is of an intersectional identity um, that you maybe not really thought about it or that you've become used to, you know, picking one over the other in a specific context, depending on where you are, uh, which, you know, I'm right there with you, buddy. We're, we're two peas in a pod. Um, <laughs> it is so important to, you know, be kind with ourselves and be forgiving with the fact that, yeah, we may not totally understand how the person that is us fits, you know, because we haven't really seen any examples of it, but that doesn't mean that they aren't there. And, you know, with, I think, a little bit of effort and exploration, especially now that we're all kind of virtual, there's a lot of forums and spaces that we might not expect. You know, I never really thought about how much I craved a uh, first generation, um, you know, immigrant friend who was also a staunch feminist and queer and had lived, you know, in a multi-ethnicity family until I found someone like that. And it was so incredibly great. And I feel like I've been able to really open up and, you know, kind of discover who I am a little bit more, which gives me the confidence to pursue my goals. Um, so I think just empowering others to do that and feeling empowered to take those chances and to, you know, keep on striving for that recognition is always so important because no matter what identity you have, you know, it's really valid and the unique ways in which you experience all of your identities um, are such important parts of the person that you ultimately are and that person deserves to be heard and seen and felt. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Let's find each other. Let's let's all do it and let's try to advocate for ourselves as well. Absolutely, Daniela. That was amazing. I really hope somebody hears this episode and reaches out to you and says, hey, let's be friends. Um, thank you both so, so much for participating in our episode today. I have so enjoyed our conversation and I really, really hope that you enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. And thank you all so much for tuning in today. This has been the Purple Couch Clubhouse from the Ohio University Women's Center. We have been reading Kimberly William Crenshaw's Mapping the Margins, Intersectionality, Identity Politics, and Violence Against Women of Color. If you enjoyed today's discussion, check out Crenshaw's TED Talk, which we have linked, and head to ohio.edu slash diversity slash women's dash center for more amazing programs and events. Until next time, folks, have an amazing day and keep growing with all of us at the Purple Couch.